I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and rabbi, Rabbi Joshua Hammerman, author of Menchmark's Life Lessons of a Human Rabbi. Mensch is a Yiddish word that has gone beyond its basic definition, a human person, and has become a shining symbol of how simply being human in today's world has become an act of heroism. To help us on our road to discovering our inner mensch, Rabbi Joshua Hammerman's new book presents 42 brief essays that mirror the 42 stops that the Israelites made as they wandered in the desert. These stories, full of the joy, sorrow, messiness, and redemption of everyday life, are designed to lead us out of our own wilderness toward realizing of our own promise as a better person. Rabbi Hammerman is the spiritual leader of Temple Bethel, which is in Stanford, Connecticut, and the winner of the 2008 Rock Owner Award for Excellence in Jewish Journalism and the 2018 Religion New Association Award for Excellence in Commentary. He's also uh, written, oh, has appeared, his, his work in the New York Times Magazine and the Washington Post. Welcome to the show, Rabbi. Nice to have you here today. It's wonderful to be here, Catherine. Okay, so we talked a little, well, we talked for a couple minutes before the show, and you said to me that Everyone can be a mensch. doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. But we all have the capacity for being a mensch. So how does that work in terms of let's talk about it in the context of your book? Well, um, first of all, the word mensch, which is Yiddish, and that comes from the German man. So one might assume that we're just talking about one gender. But in fact, um, women can be mensches. And, uh, in fact, non-Jews as well as Jews. So, uh, as, as you mentioned, anyone can be a mensch. But the word is really untranslatable. I mean, it means man literally, but it's most u- usually translated in the Jewish context as a good person. But it goes so far beyond a good person. Um, it, it, it's really untranslatable. In fact, you know, they, they talk about how um, Eskimos have 50 words for snow. Well, mensch is one that Jews have that has perhaps 50 meanings, including um, honesty, decency, wisdom, kindness, benevolence, respect, compassion, and altruism. So it means a lot of things. It means a lot of things, and I think it's something that's, well, first of all, uh, I think it's something that we really do need to discuss today, given, and I think you talk about this, uh, it seems that we live now in a time where, as you just say, every measure of civility is being overturned, it seems to me, not only here in the United States, but sort of globally. So you say, and I want you to comment on this, being a mensch may be the only measure of character that truly matters. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, the world is, is going crazy right now. This collection of, of essays that I put together really um, began a few years back. Um, as I began to try to pull together the threads of my own life and my ministry. But um, over the last two years, let's just say it's, uh, it, it's the, the need has increased exponentially. Um, as uh, what, what I call in the subtitle, uh, this is wisdom for untethered times. And it, it truly is untethered. Now, we can look at ways to change the world through concerted action, through social action, etc., but the first way, according to Jewish tradition, is to change ourselves. In fact, uh, Rabbi Israel Salanter, who's a 19th century moralist, um, he said, at first I tried to change the world and failed. 
Then I tried to change my city and failed. Then I tried to change my family and failed. Finally, I tried to change myself, and then I was able to change the world. I mean, I think that's the approach that we all need to take in uh, untethered times. I think that's the approach that that, uh, a psychiatrist or a social worker or a psychologist would agree with you. We do have to change ourselves first. So what you're saying is we have to not necessarily look outside ourselves externally, but internally. And, and that's really yeah, I think as a religious leader, you know, my wife is a psychologist, by the way, so we have these conversations all the time. <laughs> it, it's important to look internally on a spiritual level, not just a psychological level. But I think where religion maybe is a little bit different is that we're also reaching out at the same time. We're always connecting with something greater than ourselves. And the idea that, um, that we are humble, you know, that we are not the biggest thing in the universe, um, is an important part of being a mensch. If, if you call yourself a mensch, then you're not one. Because you have to be humble enough to recognize that the growth process never stops. The growth process is always evolving till the end, I guess, is what you're saying. There's always a lesson to be learned, or the lessons to be learned for, for right. growth, emotional and emotional, spiritual. So let's talk about it in the context of, well, these 42 brief essays. Um, give us an example of, of, let's talk about one or two or, or more of these essays that are in the book. Okay, sure. Um, as, as you mentioned, 42 from that number in the Bible, at the end of the book of Numbers, um, it almost gives a road map from Egypt to the Promised Land, and there were 42 stops. Uh, the Baal Shem Tov, a great leader of Hasidism, uh, said that they correspond to 42 stages of a person's growth. So when I list them in the book, they're not chronological. In fact, they're more thematic um, because they interact with one another. Sometimes uh, talking about humility and talking about humor are, are, are important to do together because you need to have a little bit of self-deprecating sense of humor in order to be humble. Um, but these examples come from real life. They're not, it's not theoretical. It's not abstract. So as a rabbi, as clergy, I'm often faced with very difficult decisions, impossible, excruciating choices. Um, one example in the book is a time when my son, who was a teenager at the time, had to go to the emergency room at the local hospital um, for something that in the end turned out not to be life-threatening, thankfully. Uh, at the same time that I entered the emergency room with him, a congregant came in, a man in his 50s, um, who had just had a, a brain aneurysm, and he was near death. And he was there with his family, his two young daughters, his wife. They were inconsolable. And I was faced with this, this horrible, almost a Sophie's Choice kind of decision. You know, do I stay with my son, or do I go a couple of gurneys over <laughs> to help my congregant? So if I stay with my congregant, then I'm being a horrible parent. If I'm staying with my son, I'm, then I'm a horrible rabbi. And I, I opted for a third choice, which was basically to be both horrible things by do, trying to do both at the same time, which, uh, you know, if this had been the maternity ward, would have been a sitcom. But here in the emergency room, it was, it was much more tragic. And yet, in the end, um, I was saved, in a sense. I was redeemed by the wife of the man who was dying, um, who came over to, to my place where my son was and asked him how he was doing. And I realized that we're all in this together, you know, that we're all 
just striving and growing and trying to do the right thing, no matter what our situation. It was a tremendous moment of growth for me. So in other words, it helped you. Would you say that humbleness, is that what you're talking about? It wasn't you at first when you were looking or deciding what you should do or trying to make a choice or a decision. The first thing was, well, it's all about sort of the outcome is is going to have to do with me. It's all about me, and and not really taking into well, for instance, the the uh, other the patient's wife who was also part of it. Is that what you mean? Like that? Well, the humility, you know, absolutely. But in either case, it wasn't about me so much as it was about family versus job or community. And in, in the case of a rabbi and and other clergy, um, our job is to be human and and to care for other human beings. So to what degree can we apply that compassion? Um, how can we apply it equally between family and community? And these, these are questions, these are situations that come up again and again for clergy and have for me and I think have helped me to become a better person. Well, that's, uh, all right, so that's, that's one of, give us another, another example. I mean, that's, that's a great example of, of humility and making those choices. Um, Another. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that, that's probably an extreme example. I mean, yeah. People don't normally. So here's the more typical kind of situation. Again, it has to do with, with sensitivity and, and compassion and sort of the conflicting roles. Um, one week I got very sick. I had, you know, the flu. And, um, and so I made the mistake of, of putting on my voicemail at the office, you know, I, just that, uh, that I was sick with the flu. And of course, I didn't sound so great either. So I get lots of messages from people telling me, why didn't you say take a flu shot? And how could you do this? And whatever. And then that weekend, we had a, uh, a bat mitzvah, which, you know, we have often. So I was faced with this excruciating choice once again. Um, you know, normally I, I, I hug the bar mitzvah kid or the bat mitzvah kid just to, because that's what I do. And it, 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 there's nothing, you know, horrible about that. And from a clergy standpoint if you're doing it for all the right reasons and normally I shake hands with people as I walk around with the Torah and I felt that because they all knew that I had been sick and that I was sick I would be infecting the entire congregation or there'd be that perception of the rabbi being so callous as to uh, as to do that and that I should sort of retreat to a bubble and stay away from all human contact um, so, you know, I, I, I ruminate, as I tend to do in my essays, a little bit over that. Um, but also, I used the um, essay as an opportunity to look at some of the ancient Jewish laws of purity and how important it is, on one level, to, to be pure, you know, clean hands and a clean heart or whatever, but also, on the other hand, to be sort of Mother Teresa-like and get down into the mud with people and that clergy are not supposed to stand above on a, on a pulpit on high and just call down the commandments, but actually be with people in their most human states, in the most vulnerable times. And um, time of illness is a very vulnerable time. In the end, um, the bat mitzvah girl and I um, came up with a great solution, um, which I probably shouldn't tell you because then, uh, you know, it'll get people to buy the book if I leave it. Uh, but I'll, I'll secret, tell you anyway. yeah. we, we We touched... Um, prayer books. So we each held our prayer book out to one another, and we touched the prayer book so that little, uh, as I call it, a textual caress was our way of expressing the need for for touching, you know, for 
for intimacy as uh, clergy and congregant at, a, at such an important, intimate moment of, uh, of her life. So that was uh, another benchmark lesson that I learned. Well, I have another solution. You could have put on white gloves so that you could shake hands with everybody. Yeah, well, actually, one option was to have the guy behind me have a dispenser of Purell so that at, right as soon as I shake hands, then we just dispense the Purell and... Um, you know, and then that sort of works. But, uh, yeah, gloves could have worked as well. But, you know, that, again, it comes back to whether, as, as clergy, you can achieve that intimacy um, that you need to, to be that professional human being, to bring out the most um, human qualities in each of us. Um, and it's getting harder and harder. And I have to say, um, because so few but noteworthy uh, clergy have, have taken advantage of their positions of power and intimacy. Um, it's made it harder for the rest of us to, uh, to achieve that, um, you know, that, that closeness that we want to have with our congregants. Rabbi, do you think that's a new phenomenon or that's something that is obviously, it's more obvious because of all the information that we have and the internet and, and we, you know, we, um, have more access to what everyone's doing, including the clergy, but that this maybe has been going on since biblical times, this well, kind of behavior we're talking going about? going on because we, we see cases of it in the Bible itself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a, a, mostly it, it's a power issue. It's not so much um, clergy. I mean, we have kings like David and, and Bathsheba, um, you know, where he really took advantage of her and her husband. But um, because the church and synagogue and other religious institutions have been held in such high esteem over the centuries. The bar is, is extremely high for us. And, uh, and, and, and we have to strive as best we can to, um, you know, to reach that bar. Um, so we know that the standards are very high, and unfortunately too many have, have fallen. Let's talk about the, because, I mean, we've, you gave two examples of um, how you've grown in those particular circumstances that you were talking about. But what about issues like, because I think these come up often with families, obviously, failure and, and forgiveness, loving and letting go, um, those kinds of, of uh, relationships. Um, how yes. do we handle the, um, Yeah, how do we become menchy in those situations? Well, it's... In, in every situation, it's difficult. Um, the loving and letting go, I do an entire section of the book on, on that. Um, particularly parenting. Uh, my, my children have been, in some ways, guinea pigs because, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to figure it out as I go along, my wife and I, as to how to live a public life while at the same time protecting their privacy, and, and not just in the emergency room, but at all times. Um, there's one chapter that originally appeared um, in the New York Times magazine where I performed my son's bris, his circumcision. And I had never done one before. I actually didn't realize I was going to be doing it. Wait, um, I'm going to, I have else, to stop you. You're, I just, because I have three sons and three grandsons and I'm trying to picture yeah. this. You've never done a circumcision before, but you do it on your own son for the first time. Yes. Yeah, it, it's okay. not as bad as it sounds. Uh, 
It sounds no terrible. <laughs> it does sound it's, terrible. And yeah, it sounds frightening. I, it, it's worse in a sense that I'm a vegetarian and I barely have ever cut meat. So, you know, to be doing that was just, you know, hard to, to be cutting that part of the flesh. Anyway, um, the, the Mohel uh, was, is, uh, he passed away, unfortunately, recently, but he was a very good friend. And, and um, so I trusted him completely, and he set everything up. There's a clamp that's put in place so that you really can't fail. You cannot go wrong. And then he gave me the knife and just spontaneously said, okay, you do it. And you know, that, that was shocking enough. But then, as I started, it, I was looking into the eyes of my eight-day-old son, and he was looking back at me, and I realized how much he trusted me and how much this new life was now being placed in, in my trust. And, of course, for the first week of his life, he basically was attached to his mom, and I was running around doing all kinds of errands. You know, I, I had very little to do with that kind of intimacy. So the fact that I understood that, and then the fact that I then had to force myself to to do this one cut. Um, in the article, I talk about how, in almost a Freudian sense, it helped me to cope with my own, perhaps, ambivalence being a parent, perhaps ambivalence at seeing this child so close to my wife, whatever, you know, I, I, I don't want to overanalyze. But it was just this, this moment that I realized that I could channel whatever feelings I had into this one cut to remind myself, to serve as a permanent reminder that I should always protect this child with all my heart and, and never allow him to see violence in any other form again, if at all possible. So it was a very extremely powerful moment for me um, in that, that moment with, uh, with my child performing as bris. Was your wife gasping, or I just... <laughs> I, I don't think she realized it was happening. That you were doing moment. it. Um, very often in a brisk situation, the mother sort of steps out into the other room. I think yeah. the father wouldn't mind doing that, too. Um, but uh, traditionally, it is the father's obligation to perform the circumcision, and um, normally it's delegated to the Moel. In this case, he just gave it back to me. That's quite a story, and I want to ask: Is that was that was that the first yeah. and last? And you, you, you also did a sur- asked about um, yeah. forgiveness and yes. failure. Yeah, and failure is, and forgiveness. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that, that is a, a major part of this book. Um, I've had, I, I think, as a professional human being, uh, a rabbi or other clergy, we have to model failure. So part of being a mensch is actually failing at being a mensch. And, you know, I, I joke about it sometimes when I make a, a silly mistake, like a typo or something, I, that I did it intentionally just to show you how I can cope with failure. Um, you know, that's a, it's a great excuse, but it doesn't usually work. But in some cases, I really have messed up. And um, in dealing with it, I think I've been able to to grow and and more so to help my congregants to grow. Um, there's one example that I cite in the book um, that is fairly well known because it went viral. It's about eight years ago, and I wrote an article at a time of e- exceptional interest in the football player Tim Tebow, um, the evangelical player, and he was doing so well that people were ascribing his success to miracles and really giving it almost a religious feel. And I was beginning to sense. 
uh, I was beginning to be afraid of, 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 a, of a sense of expectation, almost messianic expectation in this country. So I wrote about it, but unfortunately I took uh, a more cynical approach and um, wrote some things I wasn't so proud of later on. But they went viral and um, immediately came back to me, and I was being called things that I know I've never been, such as uh, prejudiced and uh, bigoted in some ways, and uh, it, it nearly destroyed me. Um, it was a horrible time, and I write about it uh, pretty extensively in the book. When, I, when it came time several months later for me to speak about it for the first time publicly, it was on Yom Kippur in front of my congregants. We have 1,500 people uh, on Yom Kippur in attendance. And I could have gone in many directions. I could have talked about the extremism that I was afraid of. I could have talked about the unfairness. I mean, I was being accused in the mainstream media of all kinds of things that really weren't fair. could have talked about the gotcha culture that we live in, and it's gotten much worse since 2011, 2012, with social media and uh, news media. But instead, I talked about failure. And it was so important for my congregants to, to, to see me dealing with it. And um, because they got some closure for their own, I mean, they, they all knew me, so they didn't think of me as being a bigot or anything like that. But they also all had their own issues that they were dealing with in their lives, people who had failed them or people whom they had failed. And it helped them to come to grips. And in some cases, people later told me that it really pulled them back from the edge of, you know, serious despair. So I was able to do a lot more good for them and for myself focusing on failure than would have been possible had I, you know, gone the other route. And um, so that, that's a significant uh, benchmark in my life. Yeah, that's a great example because I think you talked about earlier, you know, looking up to your whoever it is, whether it's your rabbi or pastor or, or your spiritual leader and being able to see you in, I always think, uh, use the word context, but in a very different context. And you were really an example, a real living example to them. And, and uh, that's the most helpful, I think. Um, right. What, yeah, and, you know, and remorse you know, it's almost been um, declared illegal by, in some quarters in, in Washington. You know, regret, remorse, um, any sense of ownership of, of any kind of mistake. You know? And uh, I think we need to get away from that. We need to pull back from that as a society. And um, I hope that a book like mine can help that to happen. I think it can. Uh, maybe my next question is, why do you think we are, we've gone in that direction? Well, um, uh, personalities aside, <laughs> and politics aside, because I think it, it's all over the map, um, I, part of it is social media, which I have a lot of faith in still, and, and the Internet. But I think there things that used to be um, forgotten over time, simple statements that are made that are careless or incorrect, now become amplified and gain a timelessness where something that someone might have written or said 30 years ago, um, certainly 20 years ago when there was an Internet, now gets sort of dredged up and, and, and it, it's also become a timeless realm where everything that I've ever said ever um, is part of the record. And because of that, it's much harder to say, let bygones be bygones and, you know, let's 
move forward. Let's move ahead. There, there's no ahead to move to. So I think that's, that's definitely part of the problem. Um, but I also think there's this gotcha culture that um, is, is looking to score points rather than to deepen relationships. And, um, you know, it, it's unfortunate that that's happening. Now, I, don't, I think that's happening more in public life than it is around the kitchen table, at least I'd like to think, um, that when people are talking to each other and they get their heads out of their phones, um, they're able to, to overcome some of these things. Yeah, well, the kitchen table, though, and the interaction that's not just virtual and not on the Internet is very different, as you say, because it's not replayed t- over and over and over. I mean, once something gets out there on social media, that's it. I mean, you can always go back to it. Um, and that's not necessarily true of the conversations that you have with your family at the kitchen table or your friends when you go out. So it's kind of a different medium, I guess, or media. Yeah, so. although I will say that I, I think something that's being replicated is this notion of, of just being unforgiving. And um, we see it with families. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I do bar mitzvahs and family events all the time, and, and almost in every situation there is someone not talking to someone in the extended family. So it is infecting private life much more than uh, than one would like. Um, I think we really do need to find ways to uh, to overcome that. Um, it's really a bit scary. Well, maybe that's that's your job as the rabbi to to do that. I guess right to do that not only for yourself but con- you know the congregation. We only have a couple yeah. minutes left, so I don't yeah, know if is, we have you know, time. It's about forgiveness. And, it is about forgiveness and, love and, and, and overcoming. Even you know the the failings. I, to look at those as growth opportunities and and not as uh, setbacks. Um, I think that's really important. So one one strategy for overcoming a failure is to drown it in goodness, to drown it in in positives. So let's say someone commits a crime or you know does something that uh, you know that that causes all kinds of consequences, negative consequences. Um, you overcome it. You know, with, with, with donations to the charity, let's say, uh, on the, the cause that, you know, what you might have, um, let's say someone, I don't know, um, deals in, in a situation where there have been, you know, a, a Me Too situation, let's say, where, where there was um, in an unintentional, perhaps, but abusive behavior. So you, you highlight the need for others to be more sensitive to that behavior and maybe make a you know a significant donation to a charity that's addressing that need. Um, there are all kinds of cases like that. Yeah, and all kinds of solutions. And well, one of the solutions, we have a minute left, is to read your book, Mensch Marks, Life Lessons of a Human Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Joshua Hammerman. Um, Rabbi, where can we <clears throat> buy your book? Um, and give us a website we can go on Amazon and at all bookstores. And I have a, um, I have a website, uh, which is uh, menchmarks.com. It's one word, menchmarks, um, on the website. And, um, of course, you can also email me. I'm at rabbi at tbe.org, and I'd love to hear from your listeners. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great talking to you. We have much more to talk about, but first, everybody has to read your book. <laughs> Right. I want, I want the word mensch to be trending. I want it to become a Yiddishism that's part of English as uh, quickly as possible. Okay. Like bagels. <laughs> yeah, like bagel. Like bagels. And fetch and, and, and chutzpah. 
Exactly. Have a great day. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author, president, and founder of Family Business USA, Henry Hutchinson. Uh, He's author of Dirty Little Secrets of Family Business, ensuring success from one generation to the next. Seventy percent of all businesses are family businesses in the United States, but only two-thirds survive past the first generation. For too many family businesses, while it may be a given that children will become the next leaders, they don't receive the preparation or training to succeed. In his book, Family Business, Henry Hutchinson offers an organiz- any organization the roadmap to ensure succession and prevent failures. He debunks the myths of family businesses and illuminates the best practices to take a family business from startup to a well-established, long-standing company. He's had 25 years of experience in business management and global family business, consulting across a range of industries, and is a veteran of a family business himself. He's a frequent corporate and university speaker, as well as a columnist and writer for the new and Observer and Charlotte Observer, Nursery Retailer, The State, and Family Business Magazine. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Henry. Thanks, Catherine. It's good to be here. Family businesses. I guess I I didn't realize, of course, until I uh, read some of the statistics, I didn't realize that there were so many, 70% of all businesses are family businesses in the United States. That's pretty high percentage um, and, um, and to me, surprising. So obviously there's a need for your book because, as you say, many of them don't survive. What By the time the third generation comes around, they're down the tubes. And so... We need a roadmap for this. So where do we start? Well, we need a roadmap to keep these to help people to keep these businesses going. 
Um, absolutely. Um, you know, just to go back on your earlier point, um, it's something like over 70, 75% of all businesses are family owned, run or managed, um, you know, to your point, but, the, the statistics they've been gathered over the last, gosh, now 20, 40 plus years, about two thirds um, don't make it from one generation to the next. So if you're in a family business, the odds of you making it to the next generation are not very good. And so that's kind of a, as you're, you know, inferring is that that's kind of why I do what I do is because there's a lot of folks out there that um, need some help. And so, um, gosh, where do you start? Um, well, we want to know, pre- plan, yeah, we want to prevent these failures so that that doesn't happen. We're making that assumption so that the business can be carried right. on. So there must be, I mean, as you point out in your book, there are just certain, I guess, certain things that we, well, one can pinpoint the don'ts, don't do this, and then and what you should actually be doing and how to make it a success. So, um, right. Well, and the big plan is this, and it's it's a little bit intuitive, but you kind of have to realize, in my mind, there are three gates, not in my mind, I'm going to say that there's no way, family businesses don't pass from one generation to the next without getting through three gates. Now, there's lots of other issues, but number one is, is the next generation sufficiently interested and capable, or do they have the potential to get there, right? So that's number one. Number two is, is the current generation able to step back enough from a psychological, financial, et cetera, reason to let the next generation get their hands on the wheel of this business so they can actually begin driving it so that we can ensure that they can actually run the business, right? And then there's number three, which is, okay, so they're interested and capable, you're stepping back. Another big question is, can the next generation get along well enough with each other to be in business together? So if the kids aren't interested and capable, you're kind of dead in the water um, as far as passing it on to the next generation. Now, they can be owners, possibly, right? They don't necessarily have to work there. They could be owners. But then if they are, many times a lot of family businesses go under because the current generation doesn't really let them get their hands on the wheel of the business and really – uh, run the business until they die, frankly. And so here I am, I'm 50, 50, 55 years old, and my parents are in their 80s, and I'm now just getting the responsibility of running the business, and most all of those will not make it. And then, you know, we've all seen it where there's brothers and sisters and cousins who inherited the business, and they just can't get along with each other. So the plan, the plan you put in place, in my mind, is you prepare for those three things and say, all right, let's start working on those three things so that by the time we get there, um, we've got that all figured out. So is this what you're talking, I mean, the, the title of the book, What is this what you're talking about when you talk, what are the dirty little secrets? Are they are they part of all of this? I mean... Um, well, it's really, yes, they are. It's really more of the, the you know, there's there's there are other family business books out there but they're most all, mostly all of them are written from an academic, research, theoretical point of view. The point and the purpose and the content of this book is it goes through actual family business, true family businesses that were in existence or are in existence, and these are the issues that they personally encountered, 
and how they went wrong or how they went right um, to make it from one generation to the next. So the Dirty Little Secrets is really more practical, um, executable, actionable things that you can do for real right here, right now, just like this other family business that you're going to be reading about, as opposed to there's some theory of family business and so on and so forth. These are okay, so it's not just a theoretical, yeah. It's it's not theoretical. Are we talking about businesses? And maybe you should describe just b- before we go through some of those. Um, all different kinds of businesses. These apply to because I mean obviously there are thousands of different kinds of businesses, family businesses. Are there particular right. ones? Yeah. Well, you know, I get uh, Catherine. I get asked that question all the time. Um, and there can be family businesses in any industry, right? I'm, I'm, I mean, how does the family business start? There's somebody who saw an opportunity or their back was against the wall, and through hard work and smarts and some luck, they have a business. Then they start grabbing in their family members because they need some help because things are going well. And then all of a sudden time passes by, and I'm going to try to transition it from one generation to the next. Um, so I'm sorry. What was what was your question again? I My question was there. different kinds. Get just like let's just say dip, sure. what the different uh, you know two or three different kinds of businesses. Right. So um, they all have the same risk, but there's one type of family business that is. I'm going to say that no matter how much help they get, no matter how much effort they put forth, the chances of them making it from one generation to the next are really, really thin, and it has nothing to do with them, but it's when you have something that requires a really high degree of expertise in order to run. And let me give you an example of, I had a client one time where the founder was a PhD chemistry person, and he founded this business on this you know, patented formula of this chemical formula that they were using in the process of their business. And so in order to run this business, you kind of need to know, have an advanced degree in chemistry. Well, it turned out that his kids were a high school graduate and and then the other one had a couple of years of community college. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's pretty difficult to run an extremely high-tech business if the next generation is not up to speed with the details of the technology, the chemistry, the science, and so on and so forth. But barring that, there are family businesses in every single industry you could possibly think about, and in fact, industries that nobody's ever thought about uh, that I was unaware of. There are people around the world that are making money doing things that I never thought you could make a business out of. Um, There's people that recycle cardboard boxes around the country. And there's a huge business in there. Um, who thought about the recycling of cardboard boxes? I didn't at the time. But it can be any industry whatsoever at all. It's really a matter of I've got a dad and maybe a mom and an uncle, and then I've got a bunch of kids, and they're reaching the age of 60-something, and um, they'd like to pass this business on to their kids. The question is, are they? do they have what it takes to be able to run this particular kind of business? So the industry doesn't really matter, frankly. Right, so the the process is the same no matter whether it's reconstituting cardboard boxes or, um, I don't know, I guess it could be a farming business or retail business. It could be a farming business. It could be a cargo business. It could be, um, um, gosh, it could be an education business. It can be a hotel business. 
It can be a farming equipment business. Um, it can be a, you know, any kind of manufacturing business. It can be any type of business, right? right? I would just say that the degree of complexity probably lowers the ability. The next generation is going to need to have that knowledge of that science if there's something particular in there. Well, you discussed yeah. se- several points, and we're talking, I guess, maybe it's seven ways to groom your child for the family business, and there are tips and advice. Okay, let's talk about some of those. Like, um, sure. I think one of the issues you talk about, and I think this really is something that does can become problematic, is how founders of the business, the first generation, can overcome their tendency to see their children as clones. Because I see that, or I have seen that a lot, and and they're not clones, and they bring a different, they bring can bring different skills to the business, and maybe skills that are more needed in that generation than they were when the company was founded. So, how do you, how does that work for training or? Yeah, and that's yeah. It's, and you know, let's let's step back real quick. It's, a, it's entirely understandable. I mean, when you say it, when it's said like that, it seems like, you know, you're mean and overbearing and so on and so forth. But in reality, look at it this way. So I found this business making these widgets. And again, through smarts and hard work and luck, I'm, this thing worked. You know, a lot of businesses don't make it, but this one did. And the reason it works is because I do it like this. I keep doing it like this. Um, I mean, I've got my business and you've got your business and we do, I do it my way and you do your thing your way and it seems to work. And so if I'm going to train somebody to do my business, I only know the way that I know. And so I'm going to train you, hey, this is how you do it. Here's steps 1 through 10 and 10 through 20 and 30 through 40, et cetera, et cetera. And if you do it just like this, it'll work because that's how it works for me, right? So I need you to learn all of that. But then we kind of get hung up. They get hung up in hey, you're not doing it exactly the way I do it. And so you kind of need to come to the realization that when you are passing the business to the next generation, yeah, they need to know how you do it, and they need to demonstrate that they can do it the way you do it and that they get it. But then you need to also realize that they're going to bring their own style and their own, basically their own skills and their own, you know, what they're gifted at. You know, they've got gifts that they're good at that maybe you're not as good at that they can enhance the business. Number one, they've got their own particular skills and so on and so forth. But number two, the market is always changing and what customers are looking for is always changing. And so it's not a matter of learning the cookie cutter approach. It's a matter of understanding the philosophy of making cookies so that, you know, what whatever customers want um, you can change, and you have the ability to say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna change ourselves in order to evolve with the market." Everybody has a strategy. Where do we want to be in five, ten years? And so, hey, the market's changing, and I need to change with it. And a lot of times, founders of family businesses get really hung up on, uh, get stuck on. You have to do it this way, and they kind of um, put down trying to try anything different. Because they'll say, hey, we've tried that before and it didn't work. It's like, well, maybe it didn't work 20 years ago, but maybe now we should look into getting the Internet, having computers and, you know, implementing some technology, so on and so forth, whatever it may be, to evolve. 
Yeah, it would seem to me that particularly at this time, because I was, as you were talking, that's exactly what I was thinking about. I mean, things, you know, these family businesses where you have somebody who's in their 70s or 80s and wanting to pass the business on to their children have not been engaged in the Internet and business in the same way. And everything has changed, and it changes so quickly. That's another thing. It does, you know, it's not from just generation to generation, but business practices change every six months. I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating slightly, but all of those issues, which you obviously talk about in the book. But one of the things you also say that children, if they're going to go into a family business, really shouldn't go directly into the business. They should work in other businesses. They should have some outside experience, not just, you know, graduate from college and then go into the family business. They need, a, they, they, they need to expand themselves before they do that. Exactly. Um, you know, the goal is to have your child, I mean, if you're going to line this up and try to make it work, um, is to have them be successfully, you know, have them successfully run the business when you're not here. So, um, and they, you know, they grow up, they, they, they work here on the weekends, summer jobs, so on and so forth. And, and that's great. It's a great opportunity. You can give them a lot of exposure. And you should keep that light. And, you know, it's kind of a, hey, does your kid like this business? And, and from my perspective, does it look like they have an interest or an inclination? But you don't have to get serious about it until they actually finish their education at whatever point they get to. But at that point in time, they really do need to, and there's, this is the highest correlation to success of transitioning a family business, is having your kid work somewhere else before they come work in the business. And there's a couple of reasons for it, but there's one real primary reason. Um, the secondary reason is go get some business experience somewhere else and see how another business works and so on and so forth, right? Because if you just come here, you're only going to know this business. Go work somewhere else and figure out how another business works. But the real reason is actually psychological. You need to go figure out who you are in this world and get your feet on the ground and become your own person. And it sounds kind of wishy-washy, but I'm going to say it again. You need to become your own person. Go, go out of town, if possible, and go get a job and go get an apartment with some people and go live your life on your own independently. Make your own money, do your own thing, and be measured on your merits externally by somebody that really doesn't care what your last name is or who your family is or what your family's business is. You're just John Smith, and you're working for some company, and you're just an employee like anybody else. And now you get to figure out what you're good at, what you're not good at, and how you kind of fit in where your place is in the world from a, a mental perspective. And now, after two years or so, if, if you want to come back into the business, you kind of have something in your back pocket that says, hey, I know who I am, and I can stand my ground, and I have my own values, I have my own beliefs, and so on and so forth. And then you can be in the business. And there's, there's a couple of things to this that will help you understand this is that, number one, if you don't do that, you're kind of always flying under the wing of your parent as a boss and as a parent. And so you really don't get the room to establish your own identity because you're always doing what dad's telling you to do or mom or whomever. And so when the time comes, you've never really actually done your own thing, Right. And so gets you gets you to point number two is that once dad, mom, or dad are gone and you're running this thing, uh, just like any business owner, you have to sit alone in your office by yourself and make decisions on your own. You can get advice all day long, but you're the one. The buck stops at you, and you've got to make the decision. 
it's the first time that you've ever kind of been by yourself and had to make your own decisions. You're 55 and running a business and your folks are no longer here. That's going to be pretty hard. That could be pretty difficult. And so it helps you, it helps develop you as a, as an individual person. And that will help you develop within the business because now you can say, Hey dad, I've got my own thoughts and my own ideas about this. And, and you can stand your ground and be your own person. And you'll Henry, have what about this? I, I want to stop you there because let's say sure. uh, there's children, three children, four children, maybe more, or maybe only two. And the parent uh, grooms one of the kids or two of them, but not the other two or three for whatever reasons. And But the other two, I mean, these are have a stake in the business. I mean, how does that work? Because you have all that, you can have a lot of internal conflict. That's one example. Or you have a spouse who wants to be in the business or one who doesn't want one of the other children to be in the, you know, their spouse to be in the business. I mean, you have all those kind of, those kinds of conflicting, um, relationships. Dynamics. Yeah. Dynamics right. among the siblings and with the parents or, yeah. Right. Well, the way, the way, I mean, number one, if it's an ongoing business, communication is the, is the huge component there. Um, and when I, when I present, I ask everybody to pull out their iPhone uh, before I, and most people tell them to turn it off. I say, the first thing I want to do is everybody pull out your iPhone and pull up your calendar. And I'd like you to set a quarterly meeting called a family business meeting. And I want you to have it repeating quarterly for the rest of your life forever. Have it go out infinitely. So, there's a lot of other things about communication that you can do, but the number one thing is that you need to get in a room once a quarter with your family members with whom you work and say, hey, we're a family business. We, you know, it's tricky being a business. It's tricky being business with your family. Let's spend an hour and just open it up and say, what are the things that we need to talk about in order to make sure that things are going well um, to be a family business? And that's, that's not the that's not this total answer, but that's something that can be done. But really, I want to move to number two. Usually, all family businesses are looking towards, hey, who's going to be running this thing in the next generation? And that's a process that you back into the family meetings. You have to kind of go through a process to figure out amongst all of the family members, what is the leadership structure going to be and how do we all get comfortable with that? And, oh, by the way, who's going to get what type of ownership? And, oh, by the way, let me complicate it even more. You've got, let's say you've got five kids and three are in the business and two are outside of the business. Well, if all of your, when you die as a parent, you're going to leave parents, you're going to leave your money to your kids. How are you going to leave the ownership to the ones that are not in the business? Because you want to give the control to the ones that are in the business. Um, There is no... Um, immediate answer, but obviously what you try to do is find out the ones that are more gifted at the business. Who's, who are the ones that are the more um, tending towards leadership and those that are not? Usually it pans out. Um, I've got a client right now where there's four kids in the business and basically there's two that are really good at it and two that aren't. So I help them try to come to the realization that you know these are your two primaries um, and how do we let's now work with them to say, how are you guys going to work well together? Right. Let's start figuring that out because if you guys can't work well together, then, you know, it's not going to work. So let's go ahead and start figuring out how are we going to do that? Right. 
Yeah, well, they don't always have you there to be able to do that, I guess, uh, to help them. So somebody has to be doing, <laughs> I am assuming, uh, they need a somebody like you. I mean, you have the communication. You mentioned the word communication. There really has to be a constant communication about these issues. As you say, these quarterly family meetings, great idea. Uh, but it also doesn't it have to be ongoing? Um, there has to be, uh, people have to be, the parents as well as the siblings, realistic about what they can and cannot do. I mean, I've noticed in some businesses, there'll be one of the siblings is is uh, passionate about wanting to be in the business, but really has no skills to, to be able to, to do it, whatever. And so that becomes an issue. Um, and they're Siblings are vying for the same title, whether it's the president of the company or vice president or, or whatever. And, and those issues seem to right. pop up. Yeah. Well, and there, frankly, Catherine, there is no there is no cookie cutter answer for that. If you've got two kids who are highly motivated, highly educated, and they're both very good at what they do, um, it really is getting them to come to the realization that. In order for this business to work well, the two of you are going to be in this business, and we're going to need to work towards figuring out how are you two going to work well together. And here is, I'm going to say, the golden, it's the, it's the golden parameter. 50-50 ownership of the business rarely, if ever, works. There, I've only known of one family business and maybe there are others where they were 50-50 owners and it worked. And the reason why it's a problem is that if you and I are partners in this thing and we're 50-50, if I say left and you say right, we end up standing in the middle and we get hit by the truck. And so there needs to, there needs to be an agreement amongst the, the two siblings, if you will, that we need to decide when you're going to get to make the call and when I'm going to get to make the call and when we're going to both have to agree, but you, the best answer is we can make it, we, you need to have one person that's in charge. You need to have one person that we're going to agree that if we don't agree that I'm going to defer to you and, and which works as long as the one that's getting deferred to actually and make sure that the one that's, 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 you have to include everybody in the decision making process. And now we have to say, we, I hate to, we have, we have 30 seconds left. I'm, I'm just fascinated with the, yeah, well, with the book and, and, and obviously with what you have to say. So Dirty Little Secrets of Family Business, great book. Henry Hutchinson, where can we go to buy the book just in 10 seconds and a website we can go to? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Family Business USA. We're only in the United States, so familybusinessusa.com. And we are in Hudson bookstores all over the, all over the country in every airport. And then, of course, we're on Amazon. Dirty Little Secrets of Family Business. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Lots of great information. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel.